Every sports fan has an opinion. Well, these are ours. Ours. Welcome to Brock and Pep's unsportsmanlike convo. And here are your hosts, Brock Fleming and Pep Cariotti. Hello, everybody. I didn't, uh, normally, we start with the date, but this is a podcast, so whenever you're listening to it, happens to to be. But we're uh, we're Friday, May seventh, oh. Friday before Mother's Day weekend. Joining me as always is Pep Cariotti from the Quebec side. We're still What's in up? lockdown and uh, <laughs> curfew. I think you guys still have curfew over there. We do eight o'clock. That's early. I mean, ah, you know what? It really is, and I, you know, not not for bar, not for going out to the bars or anything like that. It's just it's just early in general. Like if I'm out somewhere visiting somebody and at seven fifteen, I gotta I gotta start considering going home. Like it's it really it sucks. It actually does suck, and I don't I don't know if, how much longer uh, I want to do I want to deal with this. Like I'm hoping that there's a light at the end of the tunnel here in Quebec. Well, you do look a little wiser. Is it because you got your Pfizer? <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous I, when you hear it, right? When somebody else says it. Like, you know what? It was cool at the time. I was walking through the hall. I'm like, you know what? What rhymes with Pfizer? Not a lot. Like, if you look at the list of words that rhymes with Pfizer, Kaiser, uh, Miser, and then, oh, Wiser. But wiser. Uh, no, it was stupid, and I deleted it, <laughs> and I changed it to a still photo. <laughs> you let, my, you let Curtis get to you. Oh, you know what? It's it was. I was howling when I read it. Uh, when I saw the the gift that he posted, I was just cr- I was crying of laughter, and I'm like, it was stupid. I knew it was stupid. I knew it was stupid, it. but I did it. Uh, I must um, have played it two or three times. Though. Yeah. Have, do you have do, have you gotten poked yet? I have not. No, it's uh, it. I have not got my shot. I don't know what poked means, but I've not got my <laughs> shot either. It's honest to God, it's like uh, it's like a little bit of a numbing kind. Of, like if you've been punched in the shoulder, uh, that, that's really all I'm feeling. I got the Pfizer shot though. I know a couple of people who've got the AstraZeneca who had a little bit more, um, the, a few more side effects in terms of sickness. But yeah. I, I mean, it's all the same, right? But they're not all the same, but they're all typically the same uh, reaction potential. So, yeah, it's um, it's in it's by it's based on individual. Like we know, yeah. producer Mike has the uh, the the Zeneca one. I think Scott. Mm-hmm. Got the Zeneca one, mm-hmm. um, and he thought he was a little bit. It was enough that he took the day off and watched movies, but I don't think that was much <laughs> to, for him to do it. Um, <clears throat> he said his wife had the Moderna, and, and she was a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike just uh, put in the chat there that he had the uh, the Zeneca and was brutal, and I think he still mentions that he gets some. He still hasn't got his full win back. From mm-hmm. work, like when he works out, he finds he ca- he doesn't catch his breath as quick and stuff. Anyway, it's uh, you know it is what it is. We all got to do it, and you know we're, we're I don't know. I'm watching Joe Rogan and stuff like that. Really trash Canada and how we're handling it uh, from a lockdown perspective and from all these uh, different uh, rules and regulations. And um, you know it's uh, it's not often that Canada is sort of the butt of a bunch of jokes and and uh, yeah. and stuff. Uh, you know, and, it's and hard, man. It's it's hard when when people die. It's it's a whole other ball game, man. We're dealing with people's lives. Like no one should be trashing anybody. We should be helping each other. And uh, when you're dealing with d- life and death stuff, it's just uh, all all bets are off. Like I, you know, guys like him are just they're fueling the fire. Whether you believe in it or not, whether you believe in the vaccine or not, whether all that stuff aside, it's like people are dying. So, you know, I, I know firsthand, I lost my aunt last weekend to, to right. COVID. So, you know, 
am I, a, am I a bit more sensitive now to this kind of talk? I feel like this week I was when I would see anything on online about, you know, anything related to COVID and, uh, and vaccines. I, I, I feel, I felt myself getting like a little bit more riled up than I normally would, but I just, you know, dial it back. Not everyone's going to think the way you think. And that's just the way it is. Uh, okay. Um, anyways, anyways. speeds. Yeah, let's. Uh, we just talked about no intro, and then we went off for. So, <laughs> our guest is in the back room, going, "What's going on? We're talking Blue Jays today. Let's do this. It's baseball time. Oh, we got a beauty. Let's bring him on. Let's not even waste any time. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Welcome to the show. We got our special guest today, T.J. Burton. Who uh, I don't even know where to start. Your resume is fairly elaborate. Um, nice. You know, you grew up in Ottawa, played baseball on various different teams. I think you were in the Olympics at one point too. You were drafted by the Cleveland Indians in the 18th round in 2001. Now you work with the with the Jays in a, in a, a facet as well. Woo! And uh, we're we're really happy to have you on the show. I know it took a little bit of time to uh, coordinate, but uh, we finally got you. So welcome, TJ, to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. What's that? You throwing your Pep, did you just my, put your... That was my autographed 1992-93 Baseball World Series, uh, one of my prized possessions here. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a, they're not the original, obviously not the original signatures, but I'll take it. And just a so. quick glance, there's David Wells. Kind of cool. There's no video for this podcast. It's all audio, so nobody can see Pep right. throwing his balls in front of the <laughs> That's camera. Right. Anyway. That's right. Okay. So, again, thank you so much for joining. Um, let's, let's just get a quick background in your words on growing up in Ottawa playing baseball like this is not a typical road Ottawa is not a baseball factory by any stretch of the imagination um, so walk us through what is it like to be a baseball player in Ottawa um, I think growing up it's pretty normal you know like we played for Pinecrest Little League growing up and um, once I got to an age where um, Baseball becomes a little bit more competitive if you want to go to that next level around 14, 15 and played for some travel ball teams and was lucky enough to get selected for the junior national team in my uh, grade 11 year. So I was able to, you know, represent the country at a very young age and, and get those experiences going down to Florida, going down to the Dominican Republic. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, you, you kind of touched on it. When you think baseball, you don't necessarily think the city of Ottawa, but uh, there's been a lot of, a lot of folks drafted out of there in the last, I'd say, 10, 12 years. And, um, you know, Tanner Watson, who's an Ottawa product, who was arm prior. I should say arm prior. I don't want to discount arm prior. But uh, grew up playing against Tanner. He started a great program in Ottawa called uh, Watson Baseball. And uh, he's got some kids going off to college now. So uh, it's in a pretty healthy spot. That's awesome. Um, Luke Carlin, does that ring a bell for you? Yeah, I, I, I played with Luke. Uh, a little bit on the national team. Um, his dad actually coached me. Oh, nice. Um, so uh, I, I have a, a really good familiarity with Luke. We actually, he hosted me on my recruiting trip when I went to Northeastern University. He was uh, he was a junior or a senior then and hosted me on my recruiting trip. So it was nice to have somebody with, that I had some familiarity with. I went on a couple trips like that and it can be a little awkward early on when you're just sleeping in the same dorm room as a guy you don't know and, you know, trying to make that connection. Whereas with Luke, it was, it was very comfortable. 
Nice, yeah. I think, well, Luke my, went to school with uh, my brother, so a couple years younger than me, but through filming and stuff. And he went on to, again, have a pretty decent career in baseball. I think he's still managing somewhere. Yeah, uh, he's managing in the, uh, in the Indian system. I think he's the double-A AA or triple-A manager with them. Yeah, so, which uh, is... He's had a lot of success. He was built to be a coach. You always saw that in him as a player, uh, great leadership skills, and always asking questions about the game, and those are... Those are usually the guys that turn into pretty good coaches and managers. Yeah. And he was also, I, I felt, built to be a catcher because he was kind of short and stocky a little bit and whatever. But, um, yeah, awesome. Okay. Um, hey, what's the experience like when you're representing your country in any sport? Like, well, I've just finished watching the under U18 uh, hockey team uh, beat Russia. That last night? That was last night. Uh, what's game. his name? Uh, Connor Bedard? Yeah. 15 years old or something. Absolutely ridiculous. But just a lot of people are never going to get that experience. And you had the experience of representing your country in a, a world event. How was that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a really big sense of pride when, when you, you put your jersey on, you look down, and it says Canada on it. Um, I think I think as Canadian baseball players, we're 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 born a little different. We're built a little different. Um, a lot of us played hockey growing up, or at least we're immersed in that culture. So, you know, when you think of a Canadian baseball player, you always kind of think of a hard working, hard nosed team team type guy. So when you put twenty five of those guys together, it, it makes for a pretty fun group. And you know, being able to go up against the best in the world, but. But at the end of the day, when you win the game, you're winning for your country. Um, it's a really special thing. And I was very fortunate at a young age, as I said earlier, to play on the junior team and then being able to go to a couple World Cups and uh, World Baseball Classic and the Olympics and just really being able to travel the world in my early 20s. Uh, been to, was able to go to every continent but Africa, and it was just because really? I was playing baseball. So I think that was kind of the coolest experience of the whole thing. Who was uh... – who some of your mem- most memorable teammates on on the Olympic team or on the uh, Canadian team? Sorry, um, guy, that, guy that stands out to you that you say, you know what? That's that's a that's a guy that uh, kids could look up to. Oh wow! Apart, aside from yourself, yeah, that's a low. That's a big question. I mean, I, I looked up to a lot of guys because you know my first shot on the senior national team, I was twenty years old. So guys that I had grown up hearing about, all of a sudden you're you know you're sharing clubhouses with them. You know, guys like. Uh, you know, old names like Ryan Romanovich and, and Todd Betts and Stubby Clapp and, and guys like that who had just been around, had some big league time and that you had heard about. Um, and then, you know, when you show up at the Olympics, I'm sitting in the same bullpen as guys like Chris Reedsma and Raul Cormier, who, you know, unfortunately just passed away a couple couple months ago. And um, right. But just being able to talk to those guys at the end of their career great careers in the big leagues and, and just seeing the willingness to answer any question you had. And um, I think it, it was really a tight group, no matter whether you were a pitcher or a position player, it didn't really matter. Um, everybody was always there to help. And, you know, you bump into guys that you played in a tournament with 21 years ago and, you know, you, you just start telling stories. So um, it's a special opportunity and it, it's hard to single out a couple guys. Um but it, it, it just collectively, everybody's rooting for everybody. That's uh, that's pretty cool when uh, you get a chance to to be in those kind of situations. 
When you talk about playing hockey and, and, you know, obviously the Canadian stigma of being hockey players, um, you, I'm assuming you played hockey cause you brought that up, but what was your, I guess from a baseball standpoint, like in Ottawa, the, the biggest deterrent is weather and being able to play year round. What did you do in the off seasons from baseball? Were you playing other sports or were you at an early age sort of, uh, focusing on your skill sets and having places to do that within the city? Uh, I played so many sports. One of them really, from an organized perspective, was not hockey. Um, I played a lot of shinny hockey with my buddies and road hockey and stuff like that. But um, I gravitated to basketball really early in my life. Um, so that kind of became my winter sport. Um, I played a lot of soccer. I love soccer, um, baseball. And then, you know, in high school, I did everything. I think there, I, there wasn't too many sports I didn't play in high school. So I just loved being active and being out there. And I really didn't pick a sport, to be honest with you, until I was about 16 or 17. I mean, the trajectory was definitely baseball. You know, when you start having Division One universities call you when you're in 10th grade, you know that there's a pathway there. Um, but it didn't deter me from playing other sports. Like, I think my senior year of high school, you know, I think I played six sports, maybe five or six sports. So um, I think I gravitated to sports that, um, you know, kind of built athleticism. Like I, I love track and field. I loved, I don't think there's a sport that teaches you better hand-eye coordination, how to move your body than basketball. Um, I loved kind of the endurance factor of, bat, of soccer and, and the skill factor there. But uh, yeah, I'm a huge proponent of multi-sports. I think in my current role, um, working so close, closely with youth and programming, we try to we try to ensure that kids are moving around and and it's not just specific baseball activities we're teaching them. We're teaching them how to become athletes first. Well, that's the thing, and I, you know, I think the trend for, in youth sports has, and thankfully, the last decade has been do more. You know, you're going to put your kid. I know you're, you know, the uh, parents have aspirations of their kid playing. NHL or MLB or uh, NBA even now in uh, in Canada, but to to have a kid play one sport uh, specifically all the time, you got the rep- repetition uh, factor when it comes to injuries. Um, but I just think it, I think it's important cognitively to uh, to get a kid uh, exposed to as as many different things as possible, and and from a physical standpoint, super important, right? And I I find every sport has some element of um, of consistency, like. You know, there's a universal position, for example. Like, if you're playing a shortstop, that position you're in is the same position you're in when you're playing defense on basketball. So the, there are similarities in every <clears throat> every sport, excuse me. But I think it's super important you touch on a, on a great point. Can you um, talk a little bit about your experience when you did get drafted with uh, with Cleveland? Um, I, I believe you played also for in the Astros organization. Do we have that right? Yeah, you do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Getting drafted was kind of a whirlwind. Um, I, it, it wasn't overly expected. I, I had had a lot of communication with major league teams, um, but I had signed a letter of intent to go to Northeastern University, and, and, and that was my intention. I was looking forward to it. Um, and, you know, in order to that happen, you know, I lived in the OAC years. I think you guys did as well. Um, I actually had to kind of rush because they wanted me to come there after my grade 12 year and I wasn't on a trajectory of graduating after grade 12 so you know I was in the middle of as I said earlier playing a bunch of sports and had to kind of fast forward the school and my high school was very helpful given the situation 
Um, so I was, you know, that's what I was focused on. And then all of a sudden, it was June. I was I was getting ready for my graduation, and uh, not not that specific day, but um, you know, we were leading up to it. Final exams were coming. I knew I I, I thought I knew what my future was, and then I got a call um, from the Cleveland Indians, and they said that they had just drafted me, and uh, they they wanted to kind of evaluate me throughout the summer and and come with an offer near the end of the summer, and um, so. I went through that process and ended up having a really good summer with the junior national team. And the, uh, the Indians came to me with a, an offer and I, I then had to weigh a ton of options. I, I really had four or five different options. I could have went to junior college. I could have went to um, obviously Northeastern. I could have signed with Cleveland or I could have went back to high school. So I, I had to make a really quick decision at the age of 17 years old. And, um, my parents were great. They supported me and they, they let me make my own decision. Um, and I, I asked a lot of people I trusted and uh, I made the decision to sign. And uh, next thing I knew, you know, two weeks later, I was down in Florida um, at the spring training facility for instructional league. So it was, it just happened real quick. And, and, uh, but it was a unique experience, but I spent eight great years with the Cleveland Indians organization. They were, they were unbelievable. And then, uh, when I became a free agent, I decided to go over to the Houston Astros. Thought it was a better fit for me where I was in my career and where they were as an organization. Um, and spent two great years over there. And then uh, my career came to an end as I accepted the job with the Toronto Blue Jays in the off season of 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. How would you compare the draft systems in Major League Baseball and I would even say hockey in, in, in that to put the pull them, pull them together as a compared to basketball and uh, NFL, where there's really no minor league system. Like you're, you go from college and then you're either drafted or you, you toil in some, in leagues that are not necessarily developmental leagues. Do you think baseball and hockey have it right when it comes to the develop, development of a young player getting drafted a lot, a little bit younger than some of these pros get drafted in the NFL? Do you think that that serves a better purpose? And should the NFL and NBA consider these uh, those options? That's a great question. I think I think baseball is a very unique sport because even though hockey has that development, I mean, if you're a top two, three-round pick in, in hockey, you know, they're looking one, two years. You know, you might play another year in, in the CJHL, and then you're going to go play in the AHL, and then, you know, you're knocking on the door, right? They need an answer. Uh, you're probably coming to the end of your entry-level contract where baseball, like for me, example, as a 17-year-old kid, like to just put that in perspective, like, the elite of the elite of the elite were breaking into the big leagues at that time at about 22 or 23. So when you sign at 17, and trust me, I knew at that time I was not the elite of the elite of the elite, um, it's a long road. And, and I think it's needed because baseball is such a game of, repetition and, and adjustments and, and it's, it, it, there's certain elements of a baseball that's more of a one-on-one sport than necessarily a team sport. Um, but there's definitely that team atmosphere, but you know, the NBA does it, you know, I know that there's some loopholes that players are, are kind of exploiting now where they're just kind of going to the G league and, and not attending college and the NFL for me, I think you got to be a man to get into that league. So, uh, mm. You know, I'm all for those those guys going to school and, and getting a little bigger. But I think it really depends on the sport. I believe a 19-year-old with unbelievable athletic ability and, and, and God-given talents in the sport of basketball can, 
can contribute and contribute at a high level in the NBA. I, I don't necessarily seem, feel the same for baseball, even though the sport is going younger. Um, you know, you have the, you know, you have the Juan Sotos and the Bryce Harpers and, and these guys. Manny Machado, I think, was 19 when he came in, but they're few and far between. I mean, even Vladdy, everybody talks about as young. I think he was 20, 21. Um, so, but the, again, like we're talking about the elite of the elite, like they're the, the, the average major league players coming into the league at 23 and 24. So, um, and that's the way it is. That's Do you a think, long road. as you're asking that question, Pierre, I think it's a great question because we've discussed it a couple of times, but as TJ is describing his draft experience, um, those drafts when you're when you're at a almost a younger age, like baseball and hockey, you're getting drafted a lot younger than you would be with football for sure. Basketball still a little bit. Um, the negative side of that, it seems, because when you uh, chose to to sign the contract with the Indians, you essentially cut off any chance of you going to an American university because once you sign your pro, you can't go to university. Correct. Correct. You can't go as a as a as an athlete in that sport. Right. So you're basically you're forced to that fork in the road of where your career is going and what you want to do is forced a lot earlier. So now, even in retrospect, you say, you know what? I, and it seems like you've been pretty fortunate and had a long career within those organizations. And now you're you have a career in baseball, and which we're going to move to, I promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look back, you say, you know what? I did four years. You know, uh, that wasn't the greatest years of my life doing, you know, the minor league stuff. I didn't get to where I wanted to. And now I'm out. I don't have a job in baseball. I'm trying to get a job somewhere else. You know, I didn't get my, you know, there's a, there's more of an opportunity to maybe rethink or uh, say, you know what, I should have gone to university and got my degree or something where football and I mean, basketball makes you do a year, I think now, but football, you kind of have to at least put some time in the school. And at that point, you're, you, I don't know, I find the decision-making of your life happens a little bit later where you're a little bit better prepared to make that decision. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it makes total sense. It, it is a system where, yeah, like, you know, I, I've been a guest coach on the junior national team for the last five or six years. So, so I'm talking to these young men who are, you know, when I say young men, they're 16 years old, but they're, you know, they, right. they're, they're away from school. They're doing, you know, this is before COVID and virtual learning was normal, but they're doing virtual learning um, when they're away from the field. Then they got to go meet with scouts. They've got, they've got college recruiters calling them every day. Uh, they got to decide what school to go to and what's the right fit. And then they're drafted and, and it's like, you know, to your point, what do I do with the rest of my life? Um, because there are situations I was fortunate enough to play for 10 years, but there are situations where, you know, you're a year or two and done. Yeah. Um, so I think you, you, you got to weigh all those options. I think for me, I, I, I was pretty, um, I was pretty hell set. And when negotiating my contract that I had a scholarship in there. So if I was two years and out, um, I had the ability to come back to Ottawa and go to Ottawa U or go to Carleton or wherever I was, and that was going to be paid for. Um, by who? That, by the Cleveland Indians. So Major League Baseball would have okay. a, has a scholarship plan. 
So if you are drafted, um, and it, even if out of college or high school, if you have remaining years of school, you can negotiate a, that into your contract where you will have, like for me, it was $50,000. So I had $50,000 to use towards school. But you can so only you'd have 40, you could school. pocket 40 if you go to Ottawa U. <laughs> nah, well, I know. you got to uh, you got to produce some receipts, but uh, <laughs> I've heard there's some ways around it. I never used uh, my scholarship money because, um, and I guess we're going to get there soon. I, I was fortunate enough to write out a playing, um, get a pretty good job with the Toronto Blue Jays, so I didn't really have. I think school for me was if it ended quickly and I didn't have options for work, it was probably going to be the reality of going back to school, getting my education. And, in the workforce, I was just very fortunate to kind of be approached and, and, and walk into a career right out of playing, which is not usually the case. So we're going to get into, and, and we can probably transition right into it, but just real quick, that clause that uh, relates to school, is that a standard thing or is that something that you or your agent or somebody was like, look, we need to make sure this is in there and ask for it. They're not going to offer it. Or is it a standard one that every kid who kind of comes – uh, has that option. So it does, that would alleviate some of the pressure of the decision that I, that I was kind of saying, because at that point, I mean, yeah, I will sign with you because I can do university after. So I'm going to focus on this and see what happens. But if not, then I have this paid for. And that's a huge deal. So I, I wasn't aware of that, but I thought that's great. But is, do you know if that's a standard clause or if that's something that you asked for specifically? Well, it's a program through Major League Baseball. So what would happen okay. as soon as the Cleveland Indians make that commitment, what happens is basically um, it really just goes into a computer system, right? That they And they have a certain amount of money that they can use. So if I had a, started pulling from that money, basically Major League in, Baseball starts invoicing the Cleveland Indians saying, you know, you All promised right. TJ $50,000. He just used $8,000 on tuition, books, and room and board for a year of school. Uh, we paid him the money. Now you owe us that money. Is there stipulations um, on how long you're in the league for? Like, let's say you went and you were, let's, I don't know, let's say uh, Bo Bichette signs a contract like that. Now he's playing for the Jays and he's like, you know, I still want to do my university part-time, whatever, but I can dip it. I mean, he doesn't need it, but I can dip into this program and say, well, they're paying for my school or is there, I don't yeah, know why so, I'm so interested in this right now, but I, I find that it's, <laughs> it's, it was a concern of mine for, you know, young kids that are signing these contracts and I'm more of a football guy. So I understand it doesn't happen until later, but this is kind of uh, I don't know for, to me, this is a big clause for a kid making that decision, a parent who's advising their kid what to do. If you have this option, I think that's a lot easier to steer them in the right direction. Yeah. It clarified. It's a great point. It clarified things for me. It, it let me know that school was always there. I was never going to be left high and dry. Um, but the clauses, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if they're clauses. They're just okay. more of how it works. Um, you basically, once you start drawing on the money, you, you have, I believe it's five or six years to use the money. Um, so when you do start doing it, like a lot of guys come out of college in their junior year, they only have one year left. So they'll, that first off, I mean, the smartest guys I saw college-wise were the guys that, and I think agents and stuff advise their clients of this, when you only have like a year left or a semester left, do it right away. Like do it in those first two off seasons because the longer you go away from it, you'll be the, the likelihood of you actually going back and getting your degree is not, is not very high. I think that's why teams kind of use this. 
I remember hearing a stat. I don't know if it's still correct to this day, but it, there's not a high percentage of this, these dollars used. Um, so I think teams are quick to off. Like I'm sure Bo Bichette has this in his in his contract, even though he was a second round pick and a third round pick and signed for a lot of money. I'm sure it's in his contract. And now the likelihood of Bo Bichette ever using that money is not very high. So I think teams are quick to use it as a bargaining chip, knowing that on the back end, they're probably, they're probably reality never going to have to pay it out. Yeah. And I mean, that must be tough to, you know, you're making at this point now you're, you're taking care of your entire family with whatever salary, unless you're super self-motivated or you just really a degree you want to get in your pocket. I mean, there's a 10 year major league career and then you're going to retire. What's the motivation to go back to school? I mean, I, you know, that's a tough decision. And then school's not for everybody, you know, and if you focus your entire career on your, on your skills and development and you've put hours and hours and hours and, and you're going to go to school. So that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough, I'm, I'm not surprised by those numbers, but at least I, I like the fact that, uh, that it's there. And like you say, if you don't take advantage of it within the first couple of years, it's less likely. I mean, I, I know lots of adults who had an opportunity to finish their degree before they actually jumped to government or, or whatever job they took. And they had that window was like, you know, another year. And then it's just, you, you, you lose interest and your school doesn't be, <clears throat> become as attractive anymore. Yeah. I, I think all your points are valid. I I've seen a lot of guys that should have used it and didn't. And I've seen, I've seen it, you know, we're talking about Ottawa, Mike Savage, who was an Ottawa guy. He, he had a similar um, career in length to myself. 11, 12 years in the minor leagues, played in a couple Olympics, and he, um, you know, ended up retiring or stopped playing at around the age of 26, 27. Um, and he, like, fast-tracked through school. And he went four years at Carleton, I believe it was, or Ottawa U, one of them. And uh, he went to teacher's college. He's a teacher now in the city, and it was all awesome. paid for. It was all paid for, and I think another great thing about it is, like, room and board for him at that time was his mortgage. So, you know, like nice. while he was in school, his mortgage was paid for. You're either to, you know, you buy groceries, you can expense those because it's, it's, you can, if you're on a full athletic scholarship to the United States, you're getting books, food, yep. all that stuff. So all that stuff is claimable. So it allows you to actually, if you want to really go through school quickly, because you don't really have that overhanging, um, that overhanging, oh, I, well, I need a job to, to feed myself. Oh, which is, again, uh, that's great. For me, that's, uh, that was stuff, I don't know if the listeners care, but for me, that was big. I wanted to know how that worked. Uh, that was something I wasn't aware of, so I appreciate you expanding on that. Um, yep. Can Biggio use that? Uh, money for like lessons at third base or no? Is that uh, oh, hey, okay? Hey, I know, I know. It's too early. I love them. I love. Them. I love what they've been doing. Okay, so let's get into. Hey, you got a job out of this with the Toronto Blue Jays, the Canadians national team. How does that even come about? And what was your first role with them? Um, it kind of came up in a conversation with Greg Hamilton, who works for he's a national team coach with Baseball Canada. Um, we started to just have our, it was in the off season and we grabbed lunch and I started just talking about life after baseball. He's seen it time and time again, you know, guys make that transition and I knew it's, I, I know it's tough and I know a lot of guys, you know, 
get that uniform taken away and they don't know what to do. Um, so we started having that conversation. And then as the conversation kind of went on, um, it led into a phone call from the Toronto Blue Jays that they were looking to um, expand on their amateur baseball program, predominantly dealing with youth, um, and really wanted to hire somebody who could kind of lead up the charge and creating programs and, and working on side of Baseball Canada. Um, so Greg gave them my name. He, he gave me a call and said he gave them my name. But it, it was a tough decision because I had teams calling still to play and I didn't think much of it when it first came along, to be honest with you. Um, but I went up to Toronto for the Baseball Canada dinner in January, and they just asked me to interview for the role while I was there. Um, so I interviewed, and it went well, and they actually ended up offering me the job a couple weeks later. And nice. it was a whirlwind because accepting that job literally meant retiring from playing. Um, and I hadn't really thought of that until like literally that that point obviously when you're interviewing for the job you understand there's a possibility they're going to ask you and, the, and then you'll have to make that decision but when they first offered me the job I think it terrified me and I thought it was going to take me a week to make the decision two weeks to make the decision but when I really like thought about it and I looked at the rest of my life um, it, it wasn't a very hard decision um, so I, I ended up accepting the job a couple days later and, uh, a week later I was living in Toronto. I got a condo in downtown and, hmm. um, was working in amateur baseball with them running, you know, and baseball was playing, playing days were behind me. So you're pretty f like Pep and I, we talk about multiple times the, you know, the athlete suffering two deaths, like the death of your career and, and sort of a lot of times your identity um, and then, you know, obviously actual death. When you have a job lined up and it's basically a choice of saying, you know what, am I ready to retire and take this new endeavor? Um, did that make retirement easier, you think? Soften the blow? Sure. I think it, I think it was a distraction um, to, to not playing. And, and you know what? I was, going to a, I was going to a major league stadium every day to work, and um, I was learning so much, like, you know, I never had a job before, and now I'm in a pretty important role with an organization. So there's a lot to learn, um, but it's a huge adjustment. I struggled with it. I struggled with downtime. Mm. You know, I never had weekends before. You don't have weekends when you play baseball. Um, you know, nine to five isn't the hours of baseball, right? It's it's sleep till sleep in till ten a.m. You know, do whatever you need to do for an hour, grab lunch, go to the field, and you're there till midnight. And you do it all over again the next day. So you're conditioned to work that way and you're conditioned to work every day. Um, so I, strugg I, I struggled early on with, with the downtime and what to do with that. Um, but definitely I didn't think about playing very much because I was so immersed in my new career. Um, I didn't really have time to. I think there was – there was situations that came along. It's like, wow, like I, like for years, it doesn't happen too much anymore, but for years, like every visit, you know, there was members of the Blue Jays I had played with or played against and knew well and road teams are coming in and I know three, four guys on every team and some I've been roommates with and, and had great relationships. So, you know, I found myself, you know, grabbing dinner with somebody new every, every week. And so it was, and then, you know, when you see them still doing it, they're, 
there's a little bit of, man, I remember how fun that was. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think, like I said, it, it was a, um, it was a big transition, but it, it was definitely, uh, something I was ready. I, I, sorry, I don't know that I was ready for it, but I was definitely uh, preoccupied with what I was doing. There's a misconception that Toronto is a small market. Toronto's one of the biggest cities in North America. It's a it's a bustling metropolis. Certainly from a Raptors perspective, I'm a basketball guy. It's a popular place for uh, I know athletes love it. Do you get the sense that um, people the players love being in Toronto? They, do they love the city? Um, the or, do they love the organization? Yeah, Toronto. Toronto's crazy. It's it, it's on a whole other level. I mean, I've been here as a young kid, but actually living in this city. Um, the diversity of this city and, and, the, and the size and, and the just everything going on. It's, it's crazy how mm-hmm. big Toronto is on so many levels. Um, but I think, I think from a player standpoint, guys that I've had conversations with um, who played here, they love it. They love the fans. They love, um, they love how they're playing for an entire country. It's very important to, to, to us as an organization to really know, to really let our players know that that's, that's a big part of playing with the Toronto Blue Jays and being a part of the team. And they love it. And guys I talk to on the road, Toronto's a fun city. So like, you know, there, there's plenty of things to do, whether you come with the family, you can take them to the aquarium and down by the water and up mm-hmm. the CN tower. And, if you're a single, if you're a single guy and, and you like to go out and have dinner and have some, some drinks at night, there's a lot of things to do there. So, um, on a whole, I haven't heard too many people that are like, God, I hate going to Toronto. So, uh, I guess I hope that answers your question. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, uh, like I, I just get, I get frustrated when I hear Toronto is a small market city. Toronto is not a small market. And, the, and there's a, the Jays organization, from a from a fan's perspective, I mean, uh, when you're watching it on TV, there's a there's just a different vibe. Now, maybe I'm I'm viewing it through rose colored glasses because I'm a Jays fan, but I just feel like it's more of a like a family. There's a family vibe when you go to the ballpark as a Jays fan uh, than any other ballpark I've seen on television. Am I just making that up? Is that something that I'm just seeing as a fan, or do you get that sense when you go to the when you go to the dome that it's more of a it feels like a family? Everyone's got Jays gear. Um, I mean, I've been to a couple of Jays games where it's like, holy cow, everybody has an Encar- Encarnacion jersey. This is wild. And you don't see that in all every stadium. You see a lot of T-shirts and giveaways, but Jays fans spend on merch. Yeah, I think our fan base is incredible, and, and it's a whole country. And, and this country gravitates to, I mean, you're a basketball guy. You saw what happened with the Raptors, right? Like this city was on fire, but the country was on fire. And, mm. it, you know, when you're talking about 15 and 16 um, with you know those playoff runs, the city oh. was the city was was crazy, but the country oh. was crazy. Um, but to get to your with the families, I I think baseball is a family family oriented sport. I think I think baseball as a whole, Major League Baseball, like the Toronto Blue Jays, everybody's throwing a ton of resources, and it, it's all for the right reasons that. You know, how do we make our, our game more diverse? How do we make our game more attractive to the to, to young athletes? Um, that's a major focus. But I think baseball, you know, you just think of hot dogs and families and taking your son to the game or your daughter to the game. And it's just kind of what baseball's always been. And I think that's on full display in Toronto all the time. Ottawa's got some pretty good 
um, youth programs going on right now. I know there's a lot of talk with when you talk about concussions and and uh, the risks that that are involved with other sports. You're seeing kids now in Ottawa. I, I know a couple of people who are ecstatic about putting their kids in baseball, and the kids love it. They love being outside. They love the feel of their glove and catching the ball. And um, so, d- do you see baseball as a sport that's growing, even though it's probably one of the oldest sports that that exists? Is it a growing sport in Ottawa, in North America, even? Oh, it's definitely growing in Canada. I think you know, with my role as the Toronto Blue Jays, you know, that's my focus on a daily basis with Baseball Canada, uh, Little League Canada, and all of our partners is is really understanding like how do we grow this game? But it's definitely growing, and you know. I hear it all the time from people all over the country, like as the Blue Jays go, our sport goes. So, you know, we don't take that responsibility lightly. Um, That's why we, you know, we are focused right now in in building a a winner and building a sustainable winner for a long time because part of that is obviously success on the field, and that's what it's all about. But also it's success for the sport and the country, um, which means a great deal to us. All right, let's get into that team. You guys yeah. have built this team, and you guys are looking for longevity. Look, we're – I don't know if this is still accurate, Pep, the 23 games? No, we're further than that now. No, the, for their, I think they're two games over 500 now. They, they, they've split their their season their series in Oakland uh, yesterday, uh, putting up another 10 runs. Beautiful. Yeah, looking um, quite good. Hey, TJ, what's your take on these guys? Where are the Blue Jays – what would you grade the Blue Jays – this point in the season um i'm not really in in grading baseball's a baseball's a sport you know that i don't really think should be dissected especially this early in the season um you know for me in my current role i'm more focused on the youth in this country and and developing canadian baseball players into, into future major leaguers and hopefully toronto blue jays but you know watching what our baseball ops department is doing um you know, from top down is, is they're looking for players who want to win and they're looking for players um, that have a passion for playing hard and being good teammates and good, good citizens. And um, I think that's what you're starting to see with this group. You know, you're starting to see young core, uh, tremendous offseason bringing in George Springer, Marcus Simeon. Um, I think they're building a team that is becoming more and more attractive for free agents um, to want to be a part of. And I think that's important to a, a sustainable winner, but you don't have a sustainable winner without drafting and developing. And, um, you know, we just, as an organization, we unveiled our PDC this year down in um, Dunedin, which is the, you know, has now become the best spring training facility in all of Major League Baseball, and, it, and it's really not even close. Sorry, um, PDC? PDC, yeah, Player Development Complex. Gotcha. So, um, it was oh yeah, massive. I saw a video of that. Yeah. So it, oh, it, it is, is amazing. The, it is top of top in in really professional sports, but definitely in baseball. And I think that speaks to the commitment of player development and giving our players the best resources humanly possible to to succeed. And 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 uh, that's what this organization is prided itself on. Um, one of the common terms and it's all over the clubhouse and all over our building is get better every day. And, and that's, you know, that's what we, we expect out of our, or the baseball ops people expects out of our players. And, um, you know, I think when you watch the games on TV, you know, with them being down in Florida, but you just see 
you see everybody rooting for each other. And, you know, even when it's a, even when guys are having a tough time, you know, for me, I watch after a strikeout, when a guy goes to the bench and sits down beside the other guy, like they start talking about the at-bat and, and, and there's genuinely a want to help each other. They're rooting for each other and even areas where there's competition, right? I think you saw early on in the year, Rowdy Telez really helping out Vladimir Guerrero over at first. And, you know, Rowdy's, you know, he's not a dumb person. He understands that if Vladdy's playing first, he's probably not playing first. So um, you got to really have to want to win and be a good teammate to do stuff like that. Yeah. I have a question for you. Now, Brock and I talk about, we, we've offered up uh, our listeners, uh, you know, top 10 lists of, of the, the greatest plays they've ever seen. I think Brock and I both agree that 2015, 2016, 2015 in particular, um, that run was about as exciting a sporting run from any team that I follow um, in my in my lifetime. And I'm 44. I've seen, I'm, I'm a Steelers fan, Lakers fan, Raptors fan. I've seen amazing stuff. Maybe Kawhi Leonard's shot might be up there, but that wasn't for a title. That run in 2015, 2016, when that group, which was a veteran group at the time, when they left and, uh, you know, Anthopolis had, you know, depleted the system to acquire David Price and some of these guys, Latroy Hawkins, when they left and had that transition, are you surprised at how quickly Shapiro and Atkins have been able to restock the shelves and create what we see now? Um, no, no, I'm not, uh, like part of, part of, uh, part of my background with Mark and Ross and it, it, it actually happened quite by accident. But when I was with Cleveland, Mark was the GM and Ross was the director of player development. So, um, I knew both, both guys really well and I knew how much passion they had for the player development side. Um, Cleveland was a small market team, still is a small market team. And the only way they succeed is by drafting and developing players. They can't buy players. Um, it's tough to trade for a big contract. So I knew their passion and I knew their ability to, to develop players. I mean, you think of some of the Cleveland Indians rotations and, you know, the Francisco Lindors and Carlos Santana and um, Jose Ramirez and all these players that they have developed. That's, that's their business. That's what they do. So when you were able to come to Toronto um, into a huge market and with, with, with a, with an unbelievable owner who's with, who's willing to pour resources into exactly where you believe they see fit. Um, I, I wasn't surprised. And, um, you know, the one thing I'll say about, well, I'll say a lot of things about Mark and Ross and they're all positive. They, they come up with a plan. They stick to it. They don't waver. They don't listen to, um, the fans you know, they and people they complaining. Listen, they, they don't listen to podcasts. They don't listen to fans complaining. They don't read the comments on Twitter. They stick to the plan. And there's going to be bumps in the road. There's going to, there's going to be a lot of hurt. And I think one thing that they were very transparent on when they came in was, you know, there was going to be a lot of moves that really hurt. You know, trading Kevin Pilar away is, is a decision for the city that hurts. Um, you know, watching guys go away from that 15 and 16 team it hurts, but the reality of professional sports is there comes a point where you have to cut ties with players and there comes a time where you have to cut ties with, with, with certain runs. If they're not, if there's not a, a, 
if there's not, you just got to know when to cut ties and, and, and rebuild. Um, and you mentioned the age of that 15 and 16 team. Those were exciting teams. Like when you no. think about that lineup, those were exciting teams. The reality was they were the oldest team in baseball and it wasn't even close. Really? Um, so, you know, and a lot of the trades that were made in 15 and 16, you know, put the, the minor league system in a situation where there wasn't much to go to. So when you make those, those moves and start that, you know, that reset, um, you're not left with much and, and the, and the moves hurt because, you know, you fall in love with those guys when you're going, when, when you're a country and you're watching, you know, Kevin Pilar make diving catches and Jose Batista and Edwin Carnacion hitting home runs and the short time that David Price was here. And, you know, when Tulo came on in 15, like Josh Donaldson winning the MVP, like you, even guys like Ryan Goins and Devin loved Travis, Ryan like, Goins. Mm. He was one of my favorite Jays during that time. I think he's playing. He's still playing. He's with Atlanta, he was in Kansas City the last time I saw, but he may I, have moved on to Atlanta. He's in the big leagues with Atlanta or the Nationals. I saw him not too long ago. I think he played against us in the last little while. But yeah, like even guys like that, you just you fall in love with them and you don't want them to leave. But the reality is, in sports, in every sport, you got to move on. Mm. Um, you know, like. Albert Pujols yesterday. That's a situation That's, where you just have to move on. Like they just released a first ballot Hall of Fame the only guy with three thousand hits, six hundred home runs, and multiple World Series, and, and you have to move on. Um, it's tough. It's really tough for fans. It was tough from a fan's perspective during that time, and with the changeover of management and their styles. Um. You know, when you go from exciting, exciting, exciting to saying, okay, it's basically, they're saying it's a rebuild, but it's not even a rebuild, like we're going to trade and like tool up. It's like a developmental. So you, you almost like prepare for this big gap of competitive teams is sort of what you're feeling. How important is it that this nucleus with Vladdy and Biggio and Bichette, um, came up and and started to have some success. Like, how important was that from a, um, you know, again, from your job, the excitement around the Blue Jays supports the success and the, and the appeal of baseball throughout the whole country. And these guys being such a young group that came through the system, how much of an effect is it on your job and baseball landscape in Canada have these guys here now having success and bringing excitement back to the Toronto Blue Jays? It's huge. It's huge. There, there's no denying it. But I, I, one thing I'll say with, with that young core that they brought up, you know, when you talk about Lourdes Gurriel, Nigio, Bichette, Guerrero, Danny Jansen, um, you know, that core group of guys that have all played together in the minor leagues and won together, they were built to win. They were built to succeed, and they're built to root for each other. Um, and that's what that's how you build a sustainable winner. And when you get that core in place and you get that group that's ready to succeed, you start adding. You, add a, you start adding where you have holes. Um, and they're not necessarily like holes that are killing you, but it's like, is George, was George Springer... Um, something that made this team a ton better? Absolutely. Does Marcus Simeon being able to stabilize the infield a little bit make this team better? Absolutely. So, But you can't 
signing George Springer and Marcus Simeon in a team that doesn't have a core, it probably doesn't work. It ends up right. being what, what people will call, oh, that was a dumb contract. You know, we, we had four 70-win seasons. But when you add them into a core, that's what the Yankees did for years, right? You always talk about the core four. And they had money to spend. There's no question about it. But they just added where they needed people, right? But the, the, the core always remained. And right. I think that's what we're building here. And there's more to come. Like the, the depth, and they're talking about, oh, you're seeing the organizational depth. You're not really seeing the organizational depth because the organizational depth exists, exists all the way down to rookie ball. And there's guys coming that people haven't even heard of. And, and they're coming, and there's a lot of them. And there's, you know, Alex Manoa struck out 12 guys in his first start in AAA last night. Um, Simeon right. Woods Richardson is a 98 to 100 mile an hour fastball power arm. You know, got him back in the Stroman trade. You know, there's there's exciting players coming. Mm. Um, it just takes time. And we've talked about those. Some of, those are some of the names that we've talked about in uh, previous podcasts. Alec Manoa is a guy that I really like. Confident. Um, he believes that he's going to be a, a, a contributor to the Blue Jays sooner than later. I'm looking forward to seeing. I mean, I, I hope Ryu sticks around, but I mean, I really want to see Nate Pearson and Manoa go one, two uh, sometime in the future <laughs> on the Jays mound. It's going to cause a lot of problems for the AL East. I'll tell you that. I just wanted to ask you your thoughts on, uh, on the, the pitching. Now, last year was a shortened season. It was a little bit of a, every team adjusted with 60 games. You know, we saw a lot of bullpen days, um, Traditionally, you got your starter. I, I don't even know if this is if this is a strategy teams implore anymore. But tradition traditionally, you want your starter going six to seven, and you've got your setup and your closer. That used to be it for how many years? But now we now we're seeing starters tick up their their miles per hour just a, just a tad because they know that you know they just need to give them four or five good innings now, and then it's a bullpen game from the re- for the rest. Does that? affect the bullpen later on in the season. We saw it last year with the Jays bullpen. They kind of lost some steam towards the end of the season last year, and they were really, really good. Um, are we seeing um, an effect on bullpens now because of the strategy uh, come the end of the season? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm giving you my answer as an onlooker to, and a, a fan of the sport, somebody I think that watches and pays attention more than the average person. I think I think it's having an effect on, on bullpen – Pitchers, I think last year was a very hard year to evaluate anything for any team. It was just like it was a sprint. Nobody knew what to how to go about it because nobody had ever done it before. Um, but this year, I think, you know, unfortunately we've incurred some injuries early in the year, which has kind of, you know, made shuffling things around. But you've seen some some guys come out of the come out of some of the injuries and, and really been bright spots. Um to answer your question, I mean, the game's changed. Uh, and I think all sports have changed, right? The way you play hockey changed. The way you play football's somewhat changed. The way you play basketball in certain systems and, you know, shooting the three now, it's changed. And I think it will always change and it will always evolve. Um, there are a lot of people that, that put in a ton of work into our baseball ops department and baseball ops really as an industry. Um, they believe that a lot of times a third time through the lineup, it, it the pitcher is not set up for as much success as he is when he goes two times through the lineup. Um, so a lot of things they're going to look at different numbers, like like Tampa Bay. I mean, they just like it's like they're playing blackjack, right? Like when you play blackjack, you know the system. If, if I have less than ten, I hit. You know what I mean? Like 
they just play it like that. There's no right. There, there's no overthinking it. Like you saw it in the world series. And I know it got magnified because it didn't work out for them, but I applauded them because for me, if you're going to do something all year, you got to stick to it. And, um, that's how they got there and, and they went with it. And you know what? If it had worked out for them, it would have been fine. Um, nobody would have cared. Nobody probably would have even mentioned it. Um, but you always hear about it when it doesn't work out. Hey, what are your thoughts? So, again, from an onlooker who looks at the game a little bit more intent than normal fans, what are your thoughts on how the game's changed in terms of extra inning rules with the guy on second base and even the double header, seven inning double headers. What are your thoughts on those? Hmm. Um, I don't love it. Like I wouldn't want, I wouldn't necessarily want to be a pitcher. I was a bullpen pitcher for mo- most of my career. I would, I would not love the situation of coming into a tent, like going into a tie game in the 10th inning like you've already got some jitters now when you're turn like you haven't even thrown a pitch and there's a guy on second base and I'm probably sticking up for pitchers here, but, um, Which it is definitely fine. changes. Yeah. It definitely changes the game. It, it, it's a different game. Really. If you play it that way, it's a different game. Do I understand the thought process behind it? Sure. You know, you're going to get away from those 17 inning games that tax your bullpen for three weeks and you got to send four guys down after and call up three guys and you got nobody to pitch the next day. And that's when injuries happen. Um, a big thing that fans have said is baseball's too long, right? So you're trying to shorten games. Like, um, I understand why they're doing it. If you're asking me my personal opinion, I don't love it, but that doesn't make me right. Um, is right now is the pitcher ding for that runner on second? No, not in, not from an ERA standpoint. Okay. But if he if he scores and they win the game, he gets the loss. And I know he wins gets and losses loss. aren't um, something that is looked upon as a big stat as much as it was at one time. But I wouldn't want to be zero and five. Um, but you could be zero and five with a zero ERA. Like that's how that right is kind of weird. Um, and there's no special baseball. column for uh, an extra innings loss for these guys. No. Not right now, eh? No. So and that would be your biggest issue is that you kind of, from a record standpoint and your stats, it doesn't look great. Doesn't or it could effectively not look great. It doesn't. I think the I think somebody like myself looks at it and, and doesn't even look at wins and losses. But you know what? The average fan just, like let's say we claimed a guy off waivers and he's 0-6 on the year. Somebody's going to be like, we just claimed a guy who's 0-6. But that could have been 6 you know, basically inherited runners. Right. Um, but they're trying to get better. They're trying to, they put a huge emphasis on making the game more attractive to younger, more diverse athletes. Um, they're trying to make the game more appealing for the t- television audience. Like, you know, baseball has done a lot of research and, you know, there's not a lot of teenagers and 20 or young 20 year olds that sit down and watch a baseball game. And they're trying to change that. So, whether I agree with it or not, or whether the masses agree with it or not, they're trying to get better. They're trying to make it more appealing. Um, some would say it's a beautiful game, leave it alone. Some days I'm there, some days I'm not. Yeah, I, you know, I tend to agree with you in, in the sense that I don't like it. Um, 
you know, a uh, sack fly, runner goes to third, sack fly, he scores, you know, and it's, <sighs> but I do get it. I do get the not wanting to tax your bullpen and, uh, and, and basically throw your, your team off for two weeks. But um, I'm not a big fan of it. Brock, Brock, you like it. I do like it. Um, again, from the the perspective of, I don't want to be sitting for six, seven hours watching a baseball game as much as I like it. It's just, if it's going that long, that means there's a lot of slow play. There's a lot of, you know, innings where there's no base runners. I think with the guy in second, you know, usually you're waiting for a hit before you start to strategize what you're going to do with it, where now you say, okay, there's already a guy in second. Let's implement these strategies however you want to do it. Be aggressive, not wait for hits, whatever happens to be, but that kind of comes into play right away. So for me, I do like it. I agree with TJ from a pitching standpoint. I think that it needs to be uh, better tracked. And baseball is such a stats sport that there should be very specifics. Look, if you lost, um, okay, you maybe you get the L, but that's, you know, there's an asterisk there. It's a loss in an overtime uh, game that, um, you know, you were kind of put into. So there should be a way of distinguishing between the two. But ultimately... You know, again, I like it. I'm even to a point where I'm like, okay, well, if you you can start somebody on second in that inning, and if that's tied, then okay, you get somebody at first and second. And then next time you get the base, like, let's just go with it. I've heard there's a minor league. Uh, is it minor league? There's somewhere where I heard somebody posted on our uh, home Facebook run derby. group. Yeah, that it was a it's home a run derby league. for uh, to, to decide who wins. Kind of like a shootout. They pick a guy and they do a home run derby. And to me, I'm like, well, that's... Uh, the guy on second is probably a better indication of a team <laughs> winning versus a home run derby. But, you know, it's obviously being experimented by various leagues to say, how do we shorten the games or how do we decide a winner sooner or later, especially when you're dealing with, you know, 162 games, whatever it is in the season. You know, you, you just can't be going, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and expect fans to to be there for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I, I think that's the reason they've implemented it. And like, you know Yeah, like I don't I don't hate it. I, I think of I think for me I think of the player and the tough spot that that puts somebody in. Which um, makes sense. But I yeah, I, I understand why they're doing it. I, I totally get it. Um I think what's happening in some of these independent ball leagues, um a little of that might be straight entertainment, right? Like I played in the minor leagues and I played in a lot of minor league stadiums and the front office and, and the leagues, they're focused on making it an entertaining product for people to come see. Like there's not TV deals, you know, like for the most part, it's people who come to your stadiums and buy hot dogs and buy t-shirts. So you want as many of those people as possible. And maybe, maybe who, whatever league this is, I'm not sure. I, I saw the same thing. Um, you know, Somebody, somebody there has decided that this would be an exciting thing for their fans to see, and um, I think from that standpoint, I'd want to see how you're going to play out the wins and losses and all that stuff in, in statistics. But I well, mean, it, I don't know how that's going to work. It's the Frontier League, which the Ottawa Titans now play in. So we'll, if I mean, hopefully there is baseball this summer, and if not, maybe next summer. But we'll we'll be able to see it live, Brock. <laughs> Ottawa Titans fighting for a playoff spot. One game left in the season, and it's a tie game at the, at the bottom of the ninth. <laughs> they go to a home run derby. It's going to be very interesting. Well, I have a question. That's important, though. 
Like uh, I will go oh, yeah, see that, sure. and you know my I would, my kids would probably be a bit more entertained uh, if bringing them out there. So it all lines up with, uh, you know, youth and getting people more interested and excited sure. about baseball. I mean, we drove to Syracuse to watch um, the Mets minor league system uh, because I'm a big Florida Gator fan. Tim Tebow was playing, so I'm going to go watch him. Sergeant Slaughter's there. My kids are dragged <laughs> down to <laughs> sing uh, the seventh inning stretch which they had no idea what the words were. So when Slaughter puts the mic in their face, they just looked dumbfounded <laughs> at them. But whatever, they were still there. Like these are all sort of memories that you get. You know, we were fighting for bobbleheads and whatever. And it's just, it was a, it was an event. You know what I mean? And baseball, unfortunately, was kind of secondary to it. But at least the kids were engaged and they, and they felt that ballpark uh, energy, which I think was is very important. Well, I think that's where... Ottawa in the last couple of years really dropped the ball. I, I was an Ottawa Champions fan. Uh, I was there, I think one year I went to, there was there 42 games at home or something in the ballpark. And I think I went to maybe 75% of those games. And uh, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm an adult, right? I'm, I have a certain expectation. I'm not, they're there to please the kids. The, the, the uh, actual mascot was awesome. But from a entertainment perspective, it was awful. Like the, and everything was like, it was just, it just wasn't, it wasn't a good product. I just enjoyed the baseball per se. But uh, I, I get that. I mean, I get the fact that it, it needs to be entertaining. I wanted to mention, I, I don't remember in recent history seeing guys throw this hard in the majors. Like from starters to, to bullpen, guys are throwing like 95 as a starter. 96, not tipping at night. Like Ryan Barucki suddenly is throwing 97 miles an hour. Um, is this a product of the minor league system and player development? Is it fitness? Is it both? Or is it strategic? Or is it just a combination of all of it? Um, probably all of it. I mean, I think they've. it all goes back to how you're training athletes. Um, I think there was always an emphasis on throwing hard, but, you know, there was also um, – it wasn't focused on the way it is. There's, there's programs now like, you know, Driveline and Rapsido and – top velocity and all, like all they focus on is how hard you throw and what your spin rate is. Um, and I'm not, I, I, I don't, I don't live on either side of what's better. Um, I do know that the velocities, like I'd never seen anything like this in my life. Like it, when we had it, when we would face a starter that was throwing 95, like it was an, you, you want to talk about an event, like that was an event. Mm-hmm. Um, now 95 is, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you hear commentators saying, you know, he's been really working on getting his velocity up from 95 to 97. And it, it's the amount of guys that throw 100 and like 100 with movement um, is just, it's remarkable. Um, there's a lot of people that will argue there's a lot of injuries that are coming from it. I don't know what to think. I, I know that definitely the velocity is way up, way up. Well. Like it's not even, it's not even comparable to even ten years ago. I mean, Julian Mary, Julian Merriweather. I saw him in. The, I think it was the first first series of the year. Come out and throw 101, 100. I mean, Araldus Chapman threw through that a few years ago, and and I mean the, the baseball world went crazy. He came out there and did it two nights, in a row, two days in a row, and was untouchable, by the way. But um, I think it's remarkable stuff, and it's it's definitely a testament to fitness and to. I think a little bit of strategy as well, but fitness in general. And um, this ties into sort of what we want to kind of end the show with is uh, the effect uh, of COVID 
on youth baseball. Actually, youth overall, youth sports has taken a huge hit in terms of development because programs have had to be put on hold. Uh, Brock's, you know, Brock's football programming with hit with kids there. Baseball programs, hockey program, hockey's taken a, a a beating in the minor league system. How has COVID affected youth programs, um, and how are you recovering from that? Um, it's been devastating. I think it's been devastating across the board. Um, I, I I feel tremendously for youth um, and what and what they're going through with the pandemic. I, I'm I'm uh, I'm also sympath- I'm a sympathetic to everybody in this whole thing. Um, this is a, a tough hand we've all been dealt, and we've all been affected in different ways. And um, but yeah, the the sports part of it, like you know, we have a we have a big national showcase tournament we do, which which highlights the best young players. And I talked about my affiliation with the junior national team. I mean, the group of kids that are like fourteen and well, they were 14 and 15 when this, um, you know, situation started. I mean, my heart breaks for those kids because they are, I just think of my junior and senior year of high school not having sports hmm. and working my whole life. You know, the the youth landscape of baseball has changed. Like, as soon as you're 13, 14, 15, whether, whether I agree with it or whether anybody agrees with it or not, you, you choose your path. Um, and that path is like, I'm going to get a scholarship. And there's been a lot of Canadians get scholarships. Um, and it's not necessarily division one, there's division two, there's division three, there's NAIA, there's junior college, but a large number of kids are going to the States and that's been seriously, seriously affected by this one. They haven't been able to play, um, two, they haven't been able to be seen three, um, you know, kids are you know, colleges are strategically like redshirting players now to, to allow them to come back the following year. So there's less spots on teams. We're faced with that already. Uh, like from some kids that I coach with football, they're literally in limbo. He's one kid had gone down. He was at, at a prep school in the States, finished his year was great. Uh, but now with COVID hit this season last year was uh, one game, I think. So film was very limited uh, all the teams are limited with scholarships because seniors are allowed to come back. So any senior that is back for their fifth year, which they're allowed to, basically comes off of the scholarship number that they currently have. So all those are down. So now, you know, again, fighting for that. So he's like, I can't go back to the high school. You know, the scholarships numbers are down, so I haven't got offered here. Where do I go? And it's one of these, like, it's it's a, I feel bad for him. And there's multiple kids in that sort of scenario that, um, you know, again, I understand what they did from a, um, a numbers perspective and, and giving allotments to people to say, you know what, like you can come back for another year, some more eligibility, but there is still a group of kids who are kind of caught in that um, lose-lose situation, basically. Yeah. I, I, there's no way to sugarcoat it. It's awful. It's awful for what it's done for youth sports. And, um, you know, it's there's going to be – and, like, you want to talk about the amount of minor league, uh, definitely baseball, but probably probably all sports, hockey, like the amount of careers that COVID has ended where guys were playing in the minor leagues and they were coming up on a year that was pretty important for them. You know, they might've been coming off a bad year. You know, the organization had enough, um, you know, the organization had enough 
faith in them or, or invested in them that they wanted to see one more year, but it was kind of like that was their do or die year. Like if they succeeded, they were probably going to move on. If they didn't, they were going to go home, but they all just went home. Like they all just got released um, because a new draft came in. and That sucks. You it know, just, I, yeah, it's I, terrible. I was going to say at the very least, and I'm, not, I'm just trying to put a positive spin on it because there's really no other, there's no way to put a positive spin on it. But at the very least, it's across the board. Um, so everybody's dealing with it. Every every student athlete, unless they're they have private training or whatever the case is, is is dealing with the lack of training and the lack of practice and the lack of repetition in every sport. I think, and it's it's going to be really tough. I guess we'll only see the effect of this a, a few years down the road. But fingers crossed. You know, with great guys like you working uh, working youth working hard to to make sure our youth are getting serviced. Um, you know, I think, uh, thank you for, for your time. I mean, that's just, it's great stuff. What you do. We need more people like you guys. Definitely. Hey, two questions. Last one. Uh, did you have a walk-up song when you were playing baseball? <laughs> oh God. Um, I didn't, I didn't. Um, some places did them, some didn't. Um, you I ever get to choose like one big, I'm like a big, like early two thousands, like rap guy. Uh, I still am to this day. So I, I, I used uh, Jay-Z, Heart of the City, for a long time. Okay. Yeah, that was my – I think that was – I think we did some joke ones. We used to have fun with it. We used to have um, homestands where the pitchers pick songs for the hitters and the hitters pick songs for the pitchers. And, and, and we'd, we'd have fun with it a lot if there was something that came up and nice. somebody was getting roused in the clubhouse about something and we could connect a song to it. We'd usually <laughs> – talk to the front office about changing it, but you can get some guys really pissed off about changing their songs. Uh, but I see some, I just saw a highlight uh, where the one guy's son picked the walk-up song or whatever, and he ended up having a great game. So now his son's allowed to pick up Eddie, pick the walk-up song whenever he does it. Um, and the last question I'll ask you just based on the, the follow-up to the COVID and all the issues that that we're facing in youth baseball and sports in general, um, is, does the Blue Jays have a plan to re-engage kids into baseball that you guys are that ha- are ready to implement or are working towards or anything? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we did more than I think I even thought we could last year. Um, it was it was all virtual, and you know, but we 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 started doing little podcast type like this called 10 questions with that was to help out coaches where coaches could submit questions and we'd get somebody like Pat Hankin on and ask him questions. And, um, you know, we did camps at home where kids got to send in videos and we'd have some of our alumni critique what they were doing. And, you know, I think we left the support open, but the reality was a lot of the game just stopped last year, but you know, our J scare foundation kind of, they really, really stepped up to the plate and were actually awarded the, um, Alan Selig uh, Award, which is for philanthropic excellence. It's just handed out to one team every year, and they stepped up to the plate, and they helped in other ways. You know, they, they not only did they go virtual with their pro, their programming, but um, we, we held a food drive at the Rogers Center uh, that fed millions of families across the Amazing. country. And, uh, you know, I think we did as much as we could last year. I mean, this year we're still committed. Like, we haven't closed the book on this year. Um We've certainly already had a couple pushbacks. Um, we were hoping, you know, when we build out our schedule, we usually start in May. Obviously, that's not happening, and we shifted to June, and now we're shifting into July. But, you know, we're hopeful in a, in a safe, controlled way to get 
kids out on baseball fields and, and running little camps and clinics and Blue Jays days kind of thing. Um, probably around Ontario for this year. And, uh, you know, we, we as the Blue Jays, we're just looking for any ways to support our, our, our sport and these kids. And whatever we can do, um, we're all in. And we have a great relationship with Baseball Canada, Little League Canada, all the provinces. And uh, they know that they can call us anytime if they need something from us. And we'll do everything we can to help. Well, that's amazing. Um, Pep, you got any last questions? Are you good? I'm I'm good, man. This is great. If there's anything we can do to promote you or promote the Blue Jays, uh, Blue Jays Care, your programming, whatever, you just let us know. And we've got... Uh, Oh, the, our, our show on Tuesdays has a potentially a pretty broad base uh, from around. It's Ottawa based, but, you know, who knows who's watching. So if there's anything we can promote for you, just let us know and uh, we'll be glad to do it. For yeah, sure. We come, we come to Ottawa a lot, so uh, I'll take you up on that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, we would love to, uh, again, help any way we can. We appreciate your time. Again, it's, uh, you know, it was a little, you're always busy, so we're going to, Get you out again later on when you can start giving us some grades too when you're comfortable. No. We're going to put you on the spot. Anyway, we're going to go out to your walk-up song. That's awesome. And we appreciate your time. We'll have you on again. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Baseball, landscape in Canada is getting better and it's thanks to guys like you and the Blue Jays organization. So for all of listen, make sure you guys tune in. Watch the Jays. They're coming on strong. Let's see what happens. Awesome, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, TJ. Thanks, TJ. Then the Fuji's gonna break up. Now every day I wake up, somebody got something to say. What's all the fucking fussing for? Because I'm grubbing more, and I pack heat like I'm the oven door. Niggas pray and pray on my downfall. But every time I hit the ground, I bounce up like round ball. Now I don't wanna have to kill sound ball. Don't wanna have to cock back the four pound ball. Look, scrap, I got nephews to look after. I'm not looking at you dudes, I'm looking past you. I thought I told you, Cat, cause I'm not a rapper. Can I live? I told you 96 that I came to take this shit, and I did. Handle my biz, I scramble like Randall with his. Cut in hand, but the only thing running is numbers, fam. Jigger held you down six summers, damn, where's the law?